So if you've ever read or watched The Lord of the Rings, um, there's a place early on in the first book or movie where Bilbo the Hobbit is having a conversation with Gandalf the Wizard. This is, I'm, I'm pulling out my nerd card here for a moment. I've read the books, by the way. They're, they're great, all, all of them. Um, they're dear old friends. They're having a conversation. Bilbo has in his possession the Ring of Power, and it has a terrific hold on him. It's turning him ever more inward and darkened in his heart. And so he knows he's got to leave it behind. He knows he ought to let it go, but he can't bear to let it go. And so when Gandalf asks him for it, Bilbo turns nasty. And he accuses Gandalf of trying to steal it because he just wants it for himself. And in that moment, Gandalf, the kind old wizard, turns into a sort of menacing figure. He appears to grow very tall and very threatening, and his eyes begin to flash with anger, so much so that he casts his shadow over the entire room where he and Bilbo are speaking. And of course, the little hobbit becomes very frightened at the sight of Gandalf like this. And Gandalf, in a very deep and booming voice, says, I'm not trying to rob you. I'm trying to help you. And of course, that was true. Gandalf's intentions were pure. So that this great menacing shadow that he was casting over Bilbo, that was a reflection of Gandalf's goodness, not his badness. Bilbo was the one who was entertaining thoughts of evil and selfishness. And so Gandalf appeared very terrifying to him in that moment because of the evil that was in his own heart. Not any badness that was in Gandalf. Now, y'all, I mentioned that story because we're today we're in Exodus chapter 7, 8, 9, 10. This is, frankly, one of the most terrifying and unsettling scriptures in all the Bible. And it's okay for us to admit that and for us sometimes to struggle with what we read in the Bible. When we read the account of the flood in Genesis or uh, you know, the story of Job or here with the plagues in Egypt, we're not meant to just kind of whistle on past scriptures like this as if they're not difficult. Um, we're going to see today, this is the part of Exodus where God finally fulfills his promise to lay his hand of judgment upon the Egyptians. He's going to bring plagues upon them in response to their sinfulness. And this is what we've been building up to now all along since we started in Exodus 1. We saw at the beginning God's people, Israel, are enslaved and oppressed. They are under the thumb of Pharaoh and the people of Egypt. They are being uh, sorely mistreated killed, um, even, in slavery. And so God calls Moses, a man named Moses, to be a deliverer of God's people, whom God has promised to save. God is the real deliverer, but he's going to use Moses as his ambassador, his emissary. But from the beginning, we, we looked at this last week, God made a promise to Moses that Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, is not going to let the people go, except under compulsion. And now today, the moment of compulsion has arrived. Pharaoh has scoffed at the Lord. He refused to let the people of Israel go back in chapter 5. So now the time has come for both Egypt and Israel to witness the divine power of God. Now we're going to be ambitious today. I mentioned this already. We're going to try to survey nine of the ten plagues, almost three chapters of content. Y'all, there's no way to do this without a good bit of summary it's not, it's not orthodox for us, typically. We, we focus on one scripture and look at it in more detail. 
Today, though, I want, us, I want to give a summary for the sake of a bigger picture understanding. I don't want us to get lost in the individual nature of each plague, although they're important, of course, and, and I'd encourage you to go back and read on your own. There'll be a little summary today, but I want us to keep this idea in front of us. The same reason I told this story from, from the Fellowship of the Ring, God's signs and wonders, what we're going to witness today, these are displays of his power and his glory, yes, they're also acts of judgment against evil. And as we're going to see, there's acts of mercy as well. There's judgment and there's mercy, both present here, even in the plagues. Now, we've got to understand that about the nature of God, because what the Egyptians would have perceived as the menacing work of God is not a reflection of any badness in God. What we see today is a reflection of his pure goodness, his justice, his holiness. These plagues are the right punishment for the sin of Egypt. And they're also for us a living picture of the kind of disaster that sin inevitably produces for those who refuse to repent. This is a picture of judgment for sin because God is the righteous judge. Y'all, what, what happens in this scripture is bad on, on some level, but not because there's any badness in God. God is light, the scripture says, and in him there is no darkness at all. And so as we struggle through the text a little bit, we recognize that's our foundation, the goodness of God on display, even in the things that appear to be disastrous. So this is Exodus chapter 7. Look with me at verse 8 as we begin. Moses and Aaron will now return to Pharaoh. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, When Pharaoh speaks to you, saying, Work a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron came to Pharaoh, and thus they did, just as the Lord had commanded. And Aaron threw his staff down before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh also called for the wise men and the sorcerers, and they also, the magicians of Egypt, did the same with their secret arts. For each one threw down his staff, and they turned into serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Yet Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he did not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Now, this is not yet a plague. This is a sign. This is the first sign to Pharaoh. And if we remember through the Exodus account, this is also the first sign that God gave to Moses at the burning bush. The staff thrown on the ground becomes a slithering serpent. And y'all, this was an especially meaningful sign in the nation of Egypt because the snake, the serpent, was almost kind of like Pharaoh's mascot. If you've ever seen depictions of Pharaoh, he's got that big, it's a crown, but it's really a big Egyptian headdress. And right there on the front of that headdress is what? It's a cobra. It's a snake, which represented to the Egyptians power and dominion and authority. And so the point is made, even as Pharaoh's own sorcerers are, are able somehow to replicate this sign, it's Aaron's staff, serpent, that swallows up all the rest. And this was a clue to them that God's power, God has a supremacy over theirs, over anything that they might be able to conjure up. God is stronger, God is greater, and yet Pharaoh's heart is hardened. This sign means nothing to him. It doesn't move the needle at all which, of course, God knew and predicted. 
But now, see, this begins a series of escalating events. This sign precludes what's about to come now, which is not simply a marvel to the eyes. What's about to happen now to Egypt is going to hurt them at the very deepest level, profoundly throughout all of the land. And this is, when we see it as a whole, the reason we're going to do some summary here is when we see it as a whole, I think it's going to give us some insight into what God is doing, what he's aiming for. So what we see next, by summary here in chapter 7, the first plague, God very famously turns the Nile River into blood, killing the fish and making water impossible to use or drink. Now that all by itself is is a display of unimaginable power. But it's also God sending a message. Y'all, the Nile River was the crown jewel of Egypt. They all viewed the Nile as the very source of life and blessing. It's the reason Egypt was Egypt. It's the reason they were the great superpower in the world, because they had the Nile flowing right through the middle. They they loved that body of water so much that they really saw it as a divine thing in itself. They had a god of the Nile, of course. And so, y'all, if we recall back in chapter 1, when Pharaoh made that horrible and murderous decree to take all of the newborn baby boys of Israel and to cast them into the Nile to be drowned. The people of Egypt would have seen that as a sacrifice to the river god that would have appeased the gods on their behalf. That's how they thought. And so what does God do as his first act of judgment on Egypt? He turns their source of life into a source of death. See, this is more than God just displaying his power over nature or even over the false gods of Egypt. This is God's defining act of judgment to begin for a people who have uh, issued death on his people that they've perpetrated against his people. Now he brings death up from their source of life and blessing. The Nile becomes blood. Next come the frogs. And I'm not sure, I don't know what kind of person you are. The frogs might be worse than the blood. I don't know if you, how, how you might view that. So many frogs, and the Bible doesn't give us a number, but we have to think maybe in terms of millions. So many frogs, the Bible tells us, that they were filling up the sinks and the ovens in people's homes. They're everywhere. They're everywhere. Frogs, then God sends gnats. And we can assume again millions, millions of little flying, biting insects. And then God sends swarms of flies, and they lay waste to the land. So blood, now frogs, gnats, flies. Then God sends a terrible disease, pestilence on the livestock of Egypt, and scores of their animals die seemingly in an instant, if not overnight. Then God tells Moses and Aaron to take soot from a kiln and to cast it up into the sky, and then the fine dust coming down will produce painful boils and sores all over the people of Egypt. Now, all of that, what I just gave us, takes place in chapters 8 and 9. And again, I hope you'll forgive my rapid summary here. But I hope we also see the escalation that I'm talking about. Here's what's going on, not just the plagues themselves, but beginning with the frogs, that second plague, Pharaoh and his people begin to recognize the Lord is at work here. Remember the same Pharaoh who back in chapter 5 scoffed, saying, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? Now Pharaoh begins to acknowledge God, the God of the Hebrews, who is real and active and powerful, 
And Pharaoh begins to beg Moses for relief from these judgments. The frogs were already too much for them to take. And there comes a point also in these chapters where the sorcerers, the magicians of Egypt, whom Pharaoh is appealing to, you know, they can recreate all these things that God is doing, right? God is no more powerful than our gods in their own mind. But at a certain point, even the sorcerers look at Pharaoh and say, this is the finger of God. Meaning this is a power beyond our reckoning. They thought they could wield the same powers and they realized they'd been overwhelmed. Then we notice in an escalating fashion how the Lord begins to make a distinction between the people of Egypt and the people of Israel. Although they inhabit the same general land, these plagues that are falling on Egypt are being uh, saved for the people of Israel who are not experiencing this hardship at all. They don't get the flies. They don't get the boils. The Israelites remain untouched even though they're part of the same landscape. So any, any temptation for Pharaoh to say, this is just a string of bad luck. This is all natural phenomena. No, because there's a distinction being made. Israel is facing none of these hardships, only Egypt. And so Pharaoh begins to bargain. He bargains with Moses. He starts making promises. I will let the people go if only the Lord will remove his hand of judgment. And y'all, perhaps to the surprise of Pharaoh and his people, the Lord does. Exactly what Pharaoh asks. Moses goes and appeals to God. He cries out, take away the frogs, take away the flies, and the Lord takes them away. He grants relief. He removes the plague. But as soon as there's any sign of relief, Pharaoh does exactly what God said he would do. He hardens his heart all over again. He becomes more and more Uh, calloused against the Lord and his work, and he just refuses to let the people go. So all his bargaining and his promises, of course, come to nothing. He just gets harder and harder. And y'all, this all sets up for a very decisive moment on in chapter 9. So flip over to chapter 9 here with me. Verse 13, look at what happens next. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you and on your servants and your people so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. For if by now I had put forth my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, then you would have been cut off from the earth. But indeed, for this reason, I have allowed you to remain in order to show you my power and in order to proclaim my name through all the earth. Still, you exalt yourself against my people by not letting them go. Now, there's a a thread, a theme that we've been working through uh, as we've studied through this book. Week after week, we've talked about the fact that here in Exodus, God's power is displayed both in judgment and in mercy. Judgment and mercy, both as reflections of God's divine power and authority. I even mentioned this earlier this morning, that in the midst of all these terrible plagues, we see clear glimpses also of God's mercy. And this is one of them. This is an instance of both judgment and mercy, in a sense, wed together. The Lord says to Pharaoh, if by now 
I had put forth my hand and struck you with pestilence, you would have been cut off from the earth. Meaning, God could have very quickly and easily wiped the Egyptians right off the map. In an instant, he could have put them all to death, and rightly so in punishment for their evil perpetrated against the Israelites. So why hasn't he? God gives the answer. It's there in verse 16. If you see it again, but for this reason, the Lord says, I have allowed you to remain, or we could translate it, for this reason, Pharaoh, I have raised you up in order to show you my power and in order to proclaim my name through all the earth. There is, uh, for me, I think there's an amazing insight right here into the heart of God. Uh, Remember, we talked about this now already as as a baseline. These plagues are not an example of God acting badly, which certainly would have been the Egyptians' perception that this God has come in vengeance and he's bad, he's hurting us, he's bringing us harm. But understand, of course, from the greater perspective, from the Scripture's perspective, God has no unrighteousness in him. He never acts unjustly. So this is not God wielding evil because there's evil in his heart. No, this is God making himself known throughout the earth in all his righteousness and holiness and glory. And so part of making himself known both to Egypt and Israel and the world, this includes knowledge that there is a God who truly has power and authority over all things. He is the one and only true God. Over and above every pretender, every lowercase g God, that the nations pursue and admire and make sacrifice to. No, there is one God, maker of heaven and earth, one God who's truly sovereign over nature, one God who alone is worthy of worship. He is establishing himself as the authority over everything. But we also see, I hope, one God who is essentially good, meaning only the Lord can rightly judge men for their sin. He alone has that authority, that right, the kind of purity that can be the light to judge darkness. And only God, of course, as the righteous judge, only God has the ability, the authority, to grant saving mercy to sinners. And that's what's on display here. God has the right and the authority and the purity to both judge sin and to save sinners. And so here in Exodus, even as God is devastating Egypt, he's putting on display his absolute goodness, both in judgment and in mercy. Judgment for the sinner, mercy for the sinner. Because God has exclusive right to both. This is who he is. And I hope we'll see maybe a very important correlation here That God could say to Pharaoh, if I wanted to wipe you off the map, I would have done it already, but I've allowed you to remain. I've raised you up for a greater purpose, for the expression of my glory and my knowledge that everyone might see and know me. Y'all, present day, right where we sit, this this connects to us. The Apostle Peter gave us a connection. So this, this is his second epistle, second Peter. Peter speaks of the final judgment of God, the day that has not yet come the day when Jesus Christ will return and establish the full measure of God's righteousness once and for all. And y'all, on one hand, it's a terrifying reality. It's a very unsettling thought 
because Peter flat out calls it the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But then Peter addresses an important question. If God is righteous and the world is sinful, then why hasn't Jesus gone ahead and returned to set things right? Why, what's taking Jesus so long to come back and do it if God is the righteous judge and the world is mired in sin? Why doesn't he just come back and establish this righteousness, this judgment, once and for all? And Peter gives the answer. This is 2 Peter 3, verse 8. He says, Do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So on one hand, the scripture tells us that the day of God's judgment, the coming day, the great day of the Lord, is a day that is both, both fixed and certain, but it's not yet. And in the meantime, God is abundantly patient and merciful. He's kind. There is time yet. There is room still. There is opportunity, Peter says, for repentance. And so what that means for us, for everyone who draws breath this morning, we draw breath. That breath itself is a gift from God. This time is a gift of God's mercy and his kindness. If he wanted to judge us instantaneously for our sin, he could have well within his rights, because he is the righteous judge. But he is not slow about his promise. He's patient toward you. And I just want to encourage us in this moment, I mean, if, if there's anybody here who has not trusted in Jesus for the free and total forgiveness of your sin, the scripture has graciously promised us that God in his kindness is allowing you opportunity. God is patient. But there's also a word of warning in this. It comes from the Apostle Paul in Romans 2. Paul says, Do you think lightly of the riches of God's kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? God's goodness means both judgment for sin and mercy for sinners. Judgment is the outcome we earn and deserve. Mercy is a gift we receive by faith in God, by faith in his son, Jesus Christ. Which is why in the scripture, in Hebrews, we're told, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Today, as long as it's still called today, there is time, there's opportunity to respond, to repent. There is full mercy and forgiveness and eternal life for anyone who repents of sin and turns to Jesus Christ and trusts him for his grace. But of course, on the flip side of that, this is what makes the tragedy of Pharaoh and the Egyptians all the more vivid, isn't it? that no matter what God put on display for them, no matter what measure of power and authority of judgment or mercy and patience that God granted, Pharaoh and his servants, they simply would not repent. 
Pharaoh finally admits his sin. He calls it sin in chapter 9, verse 27. And he makes a promise to do what's right. He starts to bargain his way out of trouble the best he can. But at the end of each day, at the end of each plague, Pharaoh's heart is hardened afresh all over again. His heart becomes heavier, the scripture says, and more calloused, more seared over. And there is never any repentance. And so what does the Lord do? He continues to compel. He sends a great and powerful hailstorm. We see in chapter 9, hail covers the land and destroys most of the produce. Uh, followed by a devastating swarm of locusts, and the locusts come in and eat the rest of the crops that the hail left behind. And then the ninth plague is a thick and profound darkness that shrouds the land of Egypt. God calls it a darkness which may be felt. Such a thick darkness that no one even dared to leave their house for three days. And yet the people of Israel had light in their homes. And so the Lord is showing in very vivid detail here the destructiveness of sin. But again, Pharaoh tries to bargain with Moses. One last time, he says, okay, you can leave and worship, but leave your livestock behind. Leave your, leave your animals with us. And Moses, all along the way, every time Pharaoh makes a bargain, Moses simply says, no. Not just the men and leaving the women, not just the people, but leave the livestock. Whatever Pharaoh's bargain was, Moses says, no, it's an all or nothing proposition. And this is how we close now in chapter 10. Look at verse 27. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he was not willing to let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, get away from me. Beware, do not see my face again. For in the day you see my face, you shall die. Moses said, you're right. I shall never see your face again. A little tense. A little tense moment there at the end of chapter 10. Pharaoh says, you come around one more time, Moses, and I'll kill you. And Moses says, you don't have to worry about that. We're done. It's over. And here at the end of chapter 10, the door closes. The opportunity, the time for God's patience has come to its end, and it sets up now the final and decisive judgment, which we'll talk about next week, the Passover. Now, as we close, y'all, there's a lot of good application that can come from such a wealth of Scripture right here. There's a lot we could say and settle on, but I just, I, let me, I want to settle on this for us. This is for us, which I think is appropriate to the text today. We see God's judgment and God's mercy both on display as a reflection of His righteousness and His goodness. So for us, I want to close with, one, a word of warning, but then also a word of rejoicing. And those things go strangely together. Now, I mentioned earlier that these plagues against Egypt paint a picture for us of the destructiveness of sin. The plague reflects the depth of evil and sin perpetrated against God and His people. And y'all, this, this would be for us personally... It might be an easy lesson that we would kind of disregard or take for granted because, y'all, God in his mercy does not visit the kinds of disasters on us that he visits here on Egypt. And we should be so grateful that we have not been treated as our sins deserve. 
we've not been, been subject to the kind of disaster that the Egyptians were. But y'all, what we may conclude in that case is, well, my sin is not all that bad. I'm nothing like the Egyptians. And so I've earned a better place, perhaps, in God's estimation than, than they have. But the scripture is very clear that sin is sin and that God's judgment carries no distinction. And so I want to implore us in this, that if, even if our outward circumstances don't reflect such profound disaster, that doesn't make our sin any less destructive. Whatever sin we allow and embrace in our life will produce death and destruction in our lives. Paul gives us this principle in, in the uh, book of Galatians. He says, whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. The one who sows to his own flesh, to his own sin, will from the flesh reap corruption. When we sow to sin, when we embrace and nurture sin in our lives, corruption is the only outcome. That's what sin produces. And in the case of Pharaoh, the worst outcome for Pharaoh was not the outward destruction of the plagues. The worst outcome was that more and more his heart became hard against God and God's righteousness, making repentance in the end an impossibility for him. He simply wouldn't turn. And y'all, I, I know we don't, you know, impose Pharaoh's example onto us very easily. None of us want to think of ourselves like that. But I do want to encourage us in this principle that it is possible for you and me to sin so much and for so long that our consciences become seared over. We become callous to God and his word. We lose sensitivity to God. And so the warning is for all of us, whatever it is in our lives, whether we esteem it to be a great sin or a very small sin, any sin that is left unchecked and unconfessed and unchallenged will work to deaden our hearts to God. We become deaf to heaven. Sin will blind us to his light. And Jesus' condemnation upon the people that the people loved darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. Anyone can find themselves there if we allow sin to take its hold and harden us against God. That's our warning. But in that same vein, I want to give us a word of rejoicing. It opens us up. Remember, the same God who grants judgment also grants mercy. Jesus, through the cross, has made atonement for sin, all of our sin. He has nailed our sins as they were to the cross along with him to cancel out the certificate of debt which stood against us. Jesus, through his death, has made forgiveness possible. And Jesus, through his resurrection, brings all who are forgiven into a newness of life. So it's not just forgiveness of sin and God kind of brings us back to level ground. No, the promise is that if you receive Christ as your Savior, you are actually given a new heart altogether. No longer a hard heart of stone. But instead, God promises to put in you a heart of flesh that is soft and sensitive, moldable, that God might fill you with his spirit and have his way in your heart, in your life. By faith, we are no longer dead in our trespasses and sins. We are made alive to God. Meaning, 
Not only do we get to heaven one day, sure, but right here and now we are made alive. We are, we are no longer what we were. A new creation, the scripture calls us, and sin no longer has dominion over us. None of us are resigned to the fact that sin is just too strong. My desires are too settled, and I can't ever know any different kind of life. No, the scripture says we walk in newness of life by the grace of Jesus Christ. You have a new heart, no longer dead and cold, but alive and beating by the grace of Jesus Christ. And so can we just stop as we close and thank the Lord that he has not treated us as our sins deserve. He did not wipe us off the map at the first sign of rebellion. But he has been so very kind and patient toward you wishing that we would come to repentance and granting us his grace through the love of God poured out through his son, Jesus Christ. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The great demonstration of God's love. Do not think lightly of the riches of his kindness. It's his kindness that leads you to salvation, to repentance. And so I want to encourage us this morning as we open up a time of response. If the Lord is dealing with you or me in any such way, especially in this way of speaking of what it means to repent, to turn from what we are, from where we are going, from our, our, uh, a life lived in, in um, allowance of darkness, perhaps, when God is calling us by his grace into light, then I want to invite us to respond, to know what it is to walk in the light as a Christian, as a as a, a, a follower of Jesus Christ, one who trusts and receives his mercy. I want to give you that opportunity, even as we pray and as we sing our last song. Uh, Evan and Aaron, our pastors, will be in the back of the room by the doors. If you'd like to slip out and just take them by the hand, ask for prayer. It doesn't have to have anything to do with the sermon itself. Anything that you need, we want to walk with you through it. Y'all can slip out together and talk and pray. I want to offer that to you now an opportunity to respond. Whatever we do, whether we stand and sing, whether we slip to the back, God does call us to respond, to refuse to take lightly his grace toward us, but rather to embrace wholesale his kindness, his kindness which leads us into life. Praise God that he's been so patient with us and he's brought us near by the blood of his son. Let's pray. Father, um, I pray, Lord, that um, in our own unique ways, Lord, right where we sit, that we would embrace the difficulty of, of what we've read this morning, what we've seen. Lord, it should unsettle us, and I pray that it does, that the, uh, the expulsion of your judgment takes such a, uh, a devastating turn in Exodus. Father, you are holy. You do not leave sin unpunished. Those who, who mock you and who defy you and your people, Lord, you will not tolerate. Help us, Father, to see and, and take into account that, Lord, we, we have no trifling and casual relationship to you. Father, you are God. And as God, Father, 
You have been so tender and merciful toward us. You've been so patient with us, Lord. You did not wipe us out at the first sign of rebellion. In fact, Father, you didn't even just stand back and hope that perhaps we would get our act together. Lord, you came for us. You sent your Son, Lord. He, Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, became sin on our behalf so that you might make us your very righteousness, Lord, that you might give us life in place of death. Father, we'll, we'll never account for that kind of mercy and grace and love and kindness. It'll never make total sense to us, I pray. But Lord, I do ask this morning that we'll receive all of it, gladly, joyfully, humbly, Lord. And Father, this morning as we consider the, the, the leavening, the, the, um, the, the slow building work of sin, that even a little bit left unchecked, left unchallenged, Father, will grow in us and will harden us against you. Lord, as we consider the nature of sin and how it grieves your heart, Lord, I pray it would grieve us as well and that we would make no room, no provision for unrighteousness. Because, Lord, we are people of light, not darkness. We are people of purity now. Every stain and blemish you have removed, I pray, Lord, let us live, help us to live like we really believe Jesus Christ has paid it all, like we really believe we are new. Lord, let the new heart that beats within us desire you and delight in you above all things. Thank you, Father, that you've been so patient. You continue to be patient with us, Lord. Each and every day, you're so absolutely patient because you, you, your love for us is boundless. Thank you. Lord, I pray we would never take lightly the riches of your kindness. May we receive all that you have to give in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.